Memoirs of Mr. John Collier by John Corrie From the Works of Tim Bobbin, Esquire, in Prose and Verse Edited by John Corrie This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Mr. John Collier A man so various that he seemed to be not one, but all mankind's epitome, and in the course of one revolving moon was teacher, piper, patriot, and buffoon, then all for painting, quipping, rhyming, drinking, besides ten thousand freaks that died in thinking. When a man emerges from obscurity to a degree of eminence, the curiosity of the public is naturally excited, and every circumstance respecting his progress acquires an adventitious importance from the celebrity of the individual. Wit and genius are confined to no climate. Like the productions of nature, they often arise, as it were, spontaneously, and when they thus appear in the rustic walks of life, they resemble those aromatic plants and flowers which embellish and perfume the wild. Such in some measure may be said to have been the talents of the subject of this biography, but as the most precious treasures and the richest cordials are frequently misapplied and abused, so the eccentricities of genius mislead the votaries of gaiety into the dangerous labyrinth of vanity or vice. John Collier, as appears by a memorandum written by himself in his family Bible, was born December 16, 1708, at a house called Richard Jones's in Ermston, near Manchester. His father, John Collier, was a minister of the established church, and in addition to the income derived from a curacy, he kept a school, by which he was enabled to maintain a wife and several children decently. He was the instructor of his own children, among whom John appears to have been considered by him as a boy of superior abilities, and he accordingly educated him with a view of his being brought up to the church. That young Collier profited by the instructions of an affectionate and judicious father cannot be doubted, and to this early initiation in the rudiments of learning may be attributed that propensity to teaching others, which he manifested even in his youth, and which was so profitable to him during life. His father's intention of educating him for the church was unhappily frustrated by the deprivation of sight, an event which happened to him in the forty-sixth year of his age, and by which he and his family were exposed to subsequent distress. John was then in the fourteenth year of his age. He had been distinguished from his infancy for superior quickness of intellect, but the idea of his advancement by learning was now relinquished, and it was thought expedient by his parents that he should be instructed in some handicraft art. Of his aversion to engaging in manual labour, we have the following memorial in his own handwriting. It is curious as a specimen of that peculiar humour for which he was remarkable in every situation, whether adverse or prosperous. Quote, Went prentice in May 1722 to one Johnson, a Dutch loom-weaver on Newton Moor in the parish of Mottram, but hating slavery in all shapes, I, by divine providence, veiling my old skull hat to the mitres, on November 19, 1729, commenced schoolmaster of Milnrow. End quote. 
in this comprehensive sentence mr collier includes a period of seven years and a half but the intermediate time between may seventeen hundred and twenty two and november seventeen hundred and twenty nine was not employed by him in weaving for according to authentic documents he lived as an apprentice with johnson little more than a year when he persuaded his master to cancel the indentures it is probable that little rhetoric was sufficient on this occasion for his master was as much dissatisfied with his whimsical and idle apprentice as he could possibly be with that art which preserved the chastity of penelope it is a curious fact that among the peculiarities of men of genius in a low station they almost universally evince an aversion to learn one earthly thing of use whether this idleness proceeds from the natural indolence of the human mind or the innate pride of an aspiring and self-conceited individual must be left to the decision of some caledonian metaphysician but the fact is incontrovertible and there are numerous proofs on record that several of our indigent poets painters and players testified their determination not to earn their bread by the sweat of their brow even in the present age thelwall indignantly fled from the tailor's shop-board and holcroft from the shoemaker's seat and towering on the wings of self-exaltation soared like icarus towards the sun while southey and scott scorning the business of a scrivener produced their numerous volumes to amuse their admirers young collier being left free to choose an employment in the sixteenth year of his age engaged in the unprofitable though not unamusing avocation of an itinerant schoolmaster a pursuit admirably adapted to his volatile disposition and passion for variety thus he spent upwards of five years of his most precious time during which he instructed a number of pupils in reading writing and arithmetic his sphere of action was extensive for he occasionally taught in bury middleton oldham rochdale and the adjacent villages and appears to have been sufficiently assiduous in the improvement of himself and others when he had nearly attained the age of twenty-one he was engaged as usher at the time before mentioned by mr pearson curate and schoolmaster at milnrow near rochdale the salary given by mr townley of belfield to the master of this free school was twenty pounds a year which he shared with mr john collier and this moiety with the profits derived from a night school was considered by our author as a competency which shows that he was not very desirous of gain indeed the love of money was never among the vices of john collier who at no time of his life was an economist his vivacious disposition and entertaining converse soon gained him the esteem of congenial minds in his neighbourhood in a few years mr pearson died and mr collier was nominated his successor as master of the free school of milnrow being thus entitled to the full salary of twenty pounds a year which a century ago was thought a considerable sum mr collier was considered a young man of some consequence in the village at leisure hours he amused himself by lessons in the art of drawing and in playing upon the hautboy and english flute and soon became such a proficient as to be qualified to instruct others in these amusing and ornamental arts he understood the rules of perspective and drew landscapes in good taste but did not excel in portrait painting though his skill as a caricaturist is well known hitherto he had written little poetry except a few anonymous satires in ridicule of some absurd or eccentric characters 
and as no other person in rochdale or its neighbourhood was considered capable of producing such pieces he was always sure to be the reputed author mr collier was now quite a country book and was looked up to by many of the neighbouring farmers sons as a model for imitation in dress and manners this the following anecdote will illustrate one fine sunday morning in summer he went with several other young bucks to a chapel where a great number of singers from other chapels were expected they arrived before the time of divine service and several young women also came to the place who were treated by the rustic bow with such refreshments as could be procured in an adjacent public house it was then fashionable for the young women to wear large necklaces of white paste in imitation of pearl and some of them happening accidentally to come off mr collier gallantly put them round his neck the bell soon afterwards summoned the people to prayers and the company hastily entered the chapel where the odd appearance of our hero with his feminine ornaments excited some risibility he soon discovered why he was laughed at but resolving to put a good face on the matter he wore his necklaces during divine service and afterwards strutted about with them in the inn to the no small gratification of the village youth from the circumstance of mr collier's wearing the necklaces several young fellows in the neighbourhood supposed that it had become the fashion for men to wear such ornaments and three or four of them actually appeared at the same chapel a few weeks afterwards with similar decorations suspended from their necks in the year seventeen forty he published the blackbird a satire which as mr townley justly observed contained some spirited ridicule upon a lancashire justice more renowned for political zeal and ill-timed loyalty than good sense and discretion as a poetical composition however the blackbird is mere doggerel there is indeed some humour in the piece but as for rhyme the following extracts will be quite sufficient to prove the want of harmony his beaver cocked plain dealing wise he pulled so low his forehead in it seemed involved but now my angry muse reflects not on this tinkling cymbal for its jarring tone but for affecting those celestial airs by which the organ charms the listening ears it is diverting to hear such poets talk of their muse but with such a versatility of genius as mr collier possessed excellence in any particular art could not be expected his acquirements were both various and valuable to himself and others as a penman he excelled and being gifted with more good sense than usually falls to the share of a humorist he was well qualified to instruct his pupils in those arts which he professed from the ease and humour of some of his letters to his friends it is evident that he must have been a very entertaining and social companion yet however he might enjoy the delights of the festive hour it does not appear that at this period of his life he had fallen into that habit of drinking which was afterwards so injurious to himself and his family indeed the ten years that he lived as a bachelor at milnrow may be considered the happiest period of his life if the consciousness of that independence which he so highly prized and acquirements which he realized are taken into the account but his happiness like that of his master adam was imperfect without the society of woman the garden was a wild and man the hermit sighed till woman smiled the felicitous being then 
who was to give a new zest to Mr. Collier's enjoyments at Milnrow, was to be sought. She was soon found, and on the 1st of April, 1744, he married at Helmsley, Mary Clay of Flockton, in the parish of Thornhill, and West Riding of Yorkshire. She was the daughter of Mr. Clay of Flockton, near Huddersfield, where she was born, and brought up at Sedgham, the residence of Lady Betty Hastings. Miss Clay's aunt, Miss Pitt, was a woman of property, and married to Mr. Pitt, an officer in the tower. Miss Clay resided in London some years, and then came down on a visit to her aunt, Mrs. Butterworth of Milnrow, where Mr. Collier first saw her. And as she was young and handsome, with all the additional graces of a polished London lady, he soon became enamoured, and was a successful lover. Though there was some humour mingled with his courtship, the following anecdote, frequently related by himself, will evince. As Mr. Collier was walking arm in arm with his mistress in the neighbourhood of Milnrow, they met a pig-driver with two pigs. The lady said they were very pretty, clean pigs. Well, said he, if you buy the one, I will buy the other, and whoever draws back from our promise of marriage shall forfeit the pig. This was agreed upon. The pigs were fattened by Mrs. Butterworth for the wedding dinner, and Mr. Collier often said that he believed she would never have married him had she not valued her pig more highly than she did him. The bride's aunt, Mrs. Pitt, with whom she had ever been a favourite, gave her a fortune of three hundred pounds, with several silk gowns and other elegant articles of female dress. But Mr. Collier seems to have been literally intoxicated with his good fortune, for he devoted so much of his wife's fortune to large potations that it was soon dissipated and he then became sober and led a more regular life which made mrs collier aver that she was glad when the money was all gone in august seventeen hundred and forty six during an inundation of the river beale at milnrow the water rose in mr collier's parlour to the height of four feet and spoiled all the silk gowns belonging to his wife. As Mrs. Collier proved a fruitful vine, her husband was obliged to set his ingenuity to work to provide for a rising family. Quote, the oboy, flute, and amusing pencil were discarded, and the brush and palette taken up seriously. End quote. His productions in oil colours were altarpieces for some country churches and chapels of ease and as they were seldom scrutinised by connoisseurs, they passed for fine pictures with his employers. Whether he attempted the grotesque style of delineation in these ornaments is now unknown, as they have long since perished. He was also occasionally employed by innkeepers to paint signs, in which he was allowed to excel, a pursuit more congenial to his taste than the decoration of churches but such fortuitous or precarious means of raising his funds proved insufficient to supply the demand for house expenses, and Mr. Collier, in a moment of whim, happily conceived the idea of painting representations of human beings in caricatura, an art then little known in England, and only successfully practised by Hogarth. Yes, by Hogarth, ye cognoscenti, ye pretenders to superior discrimination in pictorial science. What are the most popular productions of that celebrated exhibitor of folly and vice on canvas, but strong caricatures? 
Mr. Collier's attempts to amuse the good people of Rochdale and its populous vicinity by ludicrous imagery were successful beyond his highest expectations. The genuine strokes of humour with which he portrayed the sensualist, the drunkard, the bully, the coxcomb, and the clown, in all the varieties of excess and extravagance, compelled the beholders to laugh wherever his paintings were exhibited, and as he delighted to depict the deformities of visage or feature which chance presented to his observation, the majority of his admirers, in many instances, applied the resemblance to some of their neighbours. Hence those ludicrous paintings soon became popular, their characteristic excellence became a general topic of conversation, they charmed by their novelty, gratified human malice by their satirical traits, and were eagerly purchased by opulent individuals as decorations to the parlour, nay, even the closet. So universal is the aptitude to ridicule, and such the self-complacency of the bulk of mankind, that while wrapped up in the panoply of vanity which they conceive to be impenetrable by the shafts of satire they are eager and loud in their derision of the foibles and even of the natural imperfections of those around them one fool derides another and shakes his empty noddle at his brother success in a first attempt ever proves a powerful stimulus to the man of genius as well as the man of business and the profession of Mr. Collier united both these characters, for while his paintings exercised his imagination, he was also a picture merchant. His dexterity increased by practice. He frequently painted a single portrait in the leisure hours of one day, and groups of three or four figures in a week. When he finished a painting, he carried it to one of the principal inns at Rochdale, with the lowest price affixed to it. The innkeeper willingly became his agent, and Mr. Collier, no way deficient in grateful acknowledgments, commonly expended a considerable part of the money thus obtained in such exhilarating cordials as the inn contained. Thus frequent visits to the tavern soon brought on a habit of drinking, and as the convivial powers and humorous conversation of the artist were equal if not superior to those of any of his inmates, he enjoyed that habitual superiority awarded to him, and presided at the festive board as the Comus of Rochdale. Meanwhile, orders for his ludicrous painting were multiplied. Travellers who passed through Rochdale and Littleborough bought up his caricatures with eagerness, and as his fame soon spread to Liverpool, some of the mercantile speculators of that town sent large orders for his goods, which they exported to the West Indies and North America. In consequence of this unexpected encouragement, the painter worked hard, and was often heard to declare, quote, that if ever Providence had intended him to become rich, that was the time, and he only wished for two pair of hands instead of one, that he might answer the demands of all his customers, End quote. But unfortunately, Mr. Collier had now the reputation of a wit, humorist, and boon companion, his invitations to festive meetings were too frequent for domestic economy, and as he was of a free and generous disposition, the money which came in so easily was spent with equal facility. But his attention to painting and even his habit of dissipation had not extinguished his desire to produce something literary that should survive the author. This was his far-famed view of the Lancashire dialect, 
containing the adventures and misfortunes of a lancashire clown by tim bobbin in this singular composition the author published all these peculiar variations of phraseology in general use not only among the clowns in the neighbourhood of rochdale and milnrow but other parts of lancashire which he had from time to time visited the adventures are narrated by thomas and mary they consist of the disasters of the clown and the mischievous pranks of others at his expense the incidents are ludicrous while the odd language in which the tale is told and the occasional interruptions and remarks of his auditor render it a very amusing specimen of literary composition equally valuable for characteristic illustrations of vulgar manners and its genuine originality the first edition was sent round to different booksellers in the northern counties of england and speedily purchased another impression was required to satisfy public curiosity and hence the author had the satisfaction to acquire both profit and popularity but his success tempted some avaricious booksellers to print and circulate two or three spurious impressions of the lancashire dialect which made tim declare with great indignation quote, that he did not believe there was one honest printer in lancashire end quote. to counteract this fraud and preclude the possibility of future inroads on his literary property tim decorated a third edition of his work with ludicrous and characteristic engravings from original designs and he also gave a glossary of lancashire words and phrases to enable the general reader to relish this amusingly ridiculous page twelve and the last line of the page is missing missing text tim bobbin as our author was now called had thus attained the zenith of his reputation in the year seventeen fifty while he was yet in the prime of life and in full possession of his strong intellectual powers he was now looked up to as a luminary by his rustic neighbours and visited by persons of much higher rank than himself several of his admirers occasionally invited him to an inn where they were gratified by his humorous conversation and that propensity to fun which poor tim could never restrain nay which was his chief characteristic and the pride of his life mr richard hill an opulent cloth merchant and manufacturer of baizes and shalloons at kebroid near halifax was among the number of his visitors and became so much delighted with his conversation that he offered to employ him as a clerk in his counting-house to pay him a very high salary and to settle his family in a comfortable house the offer appeared so advantageous that it was irresistible tim entered into articles of service for ten years his master was equally gratified with the expectation of the amusement obtainable from the talents of his new servant and even the advantages which he should derive from the skill in arithmetic and the quickness with which he wrote a beautiful running hand when the articles were signed and sealed which were to separate tim bobbin not only from the scenes of his youth but the society of many warm friends he waited on his kind patron richard townley esq of belfield to give notice that he must resign the school after taking leave says mr townley he like the honest moor albeit unused to the melting mood dropped tears as fast as the arabian trees their medicinal gum and in faltering accents entreated me not to be hasty in filling up the vacancy in that school 
where he had lived so many years contented and happy, for he had already some forebodings that he should never relish his new situation and new occupation. I granted his request, but hoped he would reconcile himself to his new situation, as it promised to be so advantageous both to himself and his family. He replied, it was for the sake of his wife and children that he was at last induced to accept Mr. Hill's very tempting offers. No other consideration whatever could have made him give up Milnrow School and independence. Tim's presentiment was prophetic. Both he and Mr. Hill discovered that superiority of station on the one side and servitude on the other were incompatible with that equality of sentiment and freedom of intercourse which constitute the very spirit of friendship, and that a man might be a very pleasant companion over a bottle, yet be neither so useful nor expeditious at the ledger as an individual of sober habits and humbler but more commercial attainments. Gay says, Wits are gamecocks to one another, and indeed there are numerous instances upon record of the fragility of friendship between brother wits. The King of Prussia and Voltaire were charmed with each other at a distance, but when the satirical Frenchman became the inmate of the Prussian monarch's palace, Frederick found his poetical friend too sharp-sighted to overlook his foibles, and Voltaire grew heartily tired of splendid dependence, and was eventually dismissed in disgrace. Indeed, the transition from the absolute sovereignty exercised by every pedagogue within the boundaries of his schoolroom to the tacit acquiescence due to the orders of a merchant in a counting-house was too violent not to be severely felt by a man of Mr. Collier's spirit. The close application requisite for the regular posting of accounts in a ledger must have been peculiarly irksome to a man who had from his very youth up enjoyed what Paley terms savage liberty, and in a subsequent visit to Mr. Townley at Belfield, after the lapse of only two months, Tim owned that he did not like his new situation, that he did not like the mode of transacting business in Yorkshire, for that the manufacturers and merchants there neither kept red-letter days themselves, nor would allow their servants to keep any. On his departure he repeated his request that Mr. Townley would not give away the school, for he never should be happy again till he was reseated in the crazy old elbow chair within the old school at Milnrow. It appears that Mr. Hill soon discovered the discontent of his facetious clerk, whose dejection increased with every hour. He therefore hinted to him that if he disliked his employment, he should be released from his articles at the end of the first year. To this proposal Tim gave a glad assent, and wrote to Mr. Townley on the occasion. Another letter to the same gentleman informed him that in consequence of the dissatisfaction expressed from time to time by Mr. Hill's father at the extravagant salary which he had agreed to pay his humorous clerk, the agreement was cancelled to the mutual satisfaction of all parties before the year expired and on the evening of the very day when Tim's emancipation took place, he hired a cart into which he put his goods and chattels, which by six o'clock the next morning were safely deposited in his own house at Milnrow. His joyous feelings on this memorable incident of his life are well expressed in the following extract of a letter to a friend. Kebroid, January 5th, 1752. Dear friend Dan, I felt several strong motions in the inward man, 
that prompted me to write to you about the time that I commenced Yorkshireman, but one ill-contrived thing or another kept my pen and paper at a distance. But now, thank Jupiter and my friends, I'm upon the eve of being John Duke of Milnrow again, for my rib with my bag and baggage had gone over the hills into merry Lancashire again, and twelve team of devils shall not bring me hither again, if it be in the power of Timothy to stop them. I intend to follow in a few days, and now having that son of a whore old time by the forelock, I'll stick to the flying rascal till I finish this epistle. According to the account given by Mr. Townley, quote, when Tim arrived on the west side of Blackstone Edge, he thought himself once more a freeman, and his heart was as light as a feather. The next morning he came up to Belfield to know if he might take possession of his school again, which being readily consented to, tears of gratitude instantly streamed down his cheeks, and such a suffusion of joy illumined his countenance, as plainly spoke the heart being in unison with his looks. He then declared his unalterable resolution never more to quit the humble village of Milnrow, that it was not in the power of emperors, kings, or their prime ministers to make him any offer, if so disposed, that would allure him from his tottering elbow-chair, from humble fare with liberty and contentment. A hint was thrown out that he must work hard with his pencil, his brush, and his pen, to make up the deficiency in income to his family. That he promised to do, and was as good as his promise, for he used double diligence, so that the inns at Rochdale and Littleborough were soon ornamented more than ever, with ugly grinning old fellows, and mumbling old women on broomsticks, etc. When Tim Bobbin returned to Milnrow, he had his wife, three sons, and a daughter to maintain, and there can be no doubt but he performed the social duties of a husband and father with great fidelity and affection. For with all his eccentricity, he had a good heart and a clear head. The rude and almost savage state of several of the rustics in that part of Lancashire where he resided must have disgusted Tim, but by a happy vein of satirical good humour he represented their absurdities in ludicrous delineations for his own emolument. That he frequently o'erstepped the modesty of nature is evident from such of his paintings as remain, and from many of the engravings mostly executed by himself for illustrations of what he called the human passions, but many of which have little to do with human nature. However laughable they may be, and ludicrous they certainly are, they are touched with such a prurience of volatile imagination that they may rather be considered monstrous exhibitions than faithful copies from nature. Yet the most grave and sensible mind cannot contemplate them without risibility. They are therefore a source of inexhaustible amusement, though not of instruction. But when did any humorist, with either the pencil or the pen, aim at the improvement of mankind? But Tim's inventive genius was not confined to the productions of the pencil or the graver. He occasionally produced a short satirical poem, and in one instance a satire on the partiality of his countrymen for French fashions. This piece he entitled, the Battle of the Flying Dragon and the Man of Heaton. It consists of upwards of two hundred lines, no small effort of Tim's wandering muse, much in the style and even the sentiments and manner of Swift, with great truth and force of satire, 
expressed in easy verse but with little regard to decency this censure is applicable indeed to almost every effusion of humour from chaucer down to dr walcott the humorist must excite the laugh against the subject of his satire by broad common and even vulgar epithets and similes and if he can but obtain his end he is seldom scrupulous about the means swift is notorious for the filthiness of his ideas yet his wit and humour are irresistible walcott is frequently profane but his pretensions to true humour are undeniable and collier after a fair investigation of his claims will be found a genuine son of talia an energetic and humorous satirist his poetical flights indeed never rise higher than those of the moorcock on blackstone edge and he has with great modesty and some truth termed himself a poetaster in his characteristic epitaph for several years after his return to milnrow he seems to have lived contentedly much esteemed by his friends and neighbours for his probity ingenuity wit and good humour he judiciously varied his amusements occasionally gratifying himself and his companions by his exquisite performances on the oboe and flute from music the transition to poetry was both natural and easy while the sister art of painting the most profitable if not delightful of the three was at once productive of pleasure and gain like some other wits tim bobbin seems to pride himself in treating the serious subjects of sickness and death with great levity and his account of the progress and termination of a dangerous disease is amusing january twenty fifth seventeen hundred and sixty dear sir since i saw you i've had a hard job of it as soon as you left me i grew worse and kennelled immediately slept little or none and was so hot that my crooked rib durst not touch me for fear of being blistered yet could not sweat though i endeavoured it all i could and had it continued two or three days longer it certainly would have reduced my outward man to a lump of charcoal on monday night the violent pains of my back and thighs abated had a breathing sweat and my fever diminished but yet not being punished enough for my sins these were followed by a stabbing headache especially when i coughed with continual twitchings all over the scalp and continual short stitches in the body i did not drink i did not eat or drink anything but a little warm whey from the time we parted till tuesday night after i had received your small parcel for as i thought living too well was the cause of most of the pains i suffered i would try whether clemming would drive a few of them away tuesday night had a good sweat but for all this i had no substantial symptom of being an inhabitant of this world much longer till wednesday afternoon when i got my head shaved and rubbed well with rum and a flannel clout put under my nightcap i looked into a glass this morning and was much surprised at my fizz because it confirmed what my neighbours whispered which was that i had grown sixteen or twenty years older than i was on sunday last this is a strong and faithful description of the humiliating consequences of excess the sensualist while indulging his appetites either forgets or disregards the admonitions of prudence till nature punishes his violation of her economy by the infliction of pain and the boastful proud and assuming mortal 
sinks into a helpless patient that love of independence which was a prominent trait in the character of mr collier was an incessant incitement to the industrious exertion of his talents with the pencil and the pen and as he had no competitor in this part of england he found little difficulty in selling his paintings which were certainly originals of their kind the recollection of what his proud spirit had experienced during what he considered worse than egyptian bondage in yorkshire is mentioned with great exultation at his eventual deliverance in a letter of congratulation to a friend in chester on a similar occasion it is dated february twenty fourth seventeen hundred and sixty one and contains the following spirited passage i heartily congratulate you on finding that inestimable jewel liberty again the value of which i defy the most intense thinker to conceive except he has first lost it but dear friend if the service of one nabob who lived in another house has been so grievously irksome to you how could i bear the yoke of two yorkshire nabobs and an old covetous nabobess this indeed was quite impossible to be endured by me who had reigned myself a nabob for above twenty years at milnrow and would ever stickle and ever fight for liberty like a spartan or hot-brained cromwellist however by these two specimens you have had you are now certainly able to measure hercules by his foot and know that liberty in rags is preferable to dependence in gorgeous trappings and crowds of cringing admirers and consequently your wonder must cease and my outrunning my yorkshire apprenticeship his reputation as a caricaturist was now fully established and the purchasers of his beauties as he humorously termed them in many instances became his friends indeed the cheerful and companionable disposition of the artist with the originality good sense and shrewdness of his observations and the improvement which his ductile mind acquired by occasional excursions to the populous towns of lancashire rendered him an interesting correspondent he occasionally gratified his friends with an epistle in rhyme written with great ease and familiarity and not destitute of elegance the following extract from a letter to his friend mr cowper a wine merchant in liverpool dated december twenty fourth seventeen hundred and eighty one is an agreeable specimen of his skill in this horatian mode of correspondence perhaps your pictures you expect before i feel the warm effect of your care-killing liquor but hark you sir the days are dark and cold on then i hate all work as ill as any vicar but in a month or two at least except the sun wheel back to the east you may expect your beauties but in the meantime must i fast or guzzle ale not to my taste nay hang me on some yew trees i for my cot this christmas eve write with a troubled mind believe and wife in doleful dumps for who can merry be that's wise while what he wants in lerpo lies and vexed with jeers and frumps pray send a line that i may say to my crooked rib on such a day your gossip's nose shall job in a tankard made of mountain wine sweet water nutmeg sugar fine and set at rest tim bobbin some of our poets either from the whim of the moment or the tenderness of their hearts 
have celebrated the good qualities of a favourite quadruped. Burns's farmer's address to his old mare Maggie, Pratt's old horse's address to his master and his hermit and dog, and Cowper's ode on the fidelity of his spaniel, are beautiful specimens of this kind of composition. Collier has also distinguished himself by humorously recording the death of his old mare, both in prose and verse, in that ludicrously sentimental style, which, although it reminds us of Stern, is original. Milnrow, February 14th, 1764 To Mr. R. W. Dear friend, This is a sorrowful day to me, for my Tom is come home with the sorrowful news that he could not reach Middleton last night with poor Jenny, and that she died this morning. Had she come hither and made her exit, I would have buried her in the well-beloved pasture, the wheat-field, with a stone over her, and this epitaph. Here lies interned both flesh and bone, Tim Bobbin's Jenny Cameron, the best mare ever rode upon. A bit, February 25th, 1764. My son came home in a fright without her hide, but I've sent him back again for it. Pray advise with Adam Holland, Haslam, and other virtuosos in the skins of animals, whether I cannot have a hook-skin pair of breeches made of it. Perhaps you'll think I'm off at the side, or that I'm shaken from top to toe when I tell you. I sign with tears. Dear sir, your most, etc. T.B. P.S. I have thoughts of getting my old black coat turned for mourning, but I'm afraid hair shag will look very queerly inside outwards. Pray advise with my friends on this weighty affair, and also whether I should not have a brief. Mr. Collier, or as he delighted to be named, Tim Bobbin, had now to provide for the maintenance of a family of eleven persons. But as he was active in genius, a dexterous artist, and could also handle, quote, the pen of a ready writer, his income by his efforts with the pencil and the grey goose quill, and his salary as a schoolmaster, amply supplied him and his family not only with the necessaries but some of the luxuries of life of this we have already seen a proof and laughed at them he imbibed a tincture of the same phraseology of which he could never wholly divest himself some of his short poetical pieces are written with ease others are incorrect coarse and vulgar his prose is much superior to his poetry and many of his letters are not only truly humorous, and expressed in a perspicuous and masculine style. He has recorded some characteristics of his compatriots which will ever be valuable as illustrations of the manners of the age in which they were written, and a most curious and interesting collection of his epistolary correspondence, both in prose and verse, carefully and correctly transcribed by himself, was lately purchased by the publisher of this volume, from his son, Mr. Thomas Collier of Rochdale. These letters are written in a beautiful hand and are worthy of preservation, as a fine specimen of the penmanship of Tim Bobbin. A Eulogium on Tim Bobbin, by way of epitaph, by his son, Thomas Collier. By all that's good, by all that's dear, it matters not who moulders here. Then come my muse, my spirits cheer, away with mournful strains. "'Twas worse than childhood's senseless whim, "'one wick to light, one lamp to trim, 
or shed one single tear for Tim, whose life and soul remains. No lark that warbles in the wind, or sons of mirth to wit inclined, could match thy sprightly turn of mind, while nectar crowned the board. Thou loved the flowing howl to quaff, to crack the joke, to raise the laugh, nor didst thou ever rest thy staff, but there the table roared. Though Hogarth could the soul express, thy forte, O Tim, was little less, as bright thou shinest, I must confess, when aided with thy pen. Nay, when you read the works he wrote, his humorous droll surpassing thought, I'll lay a guinea to a groat, you'll laugh in spite of men. Nay more, for more may yet be said, thy name, O Tim, thy works hath spread, and thou, like Homer, shall be read, as long as time remains. Yes, long as glittering stars seem bright, thy dialect eccentric quite, when well tis read, must yield delight to native nymphs and swains. End of Memoirs of John Collier by John Corrie